Last week, as you know, we finished up the Gospel of John. Thank you, Mike. And today we're starting a series that will take us through June, maybe into July, I haven't decided yet, about um, the family. And this, so this is more of a topical study as opposed to you know, going through a book of the Bible. We're going to hit on what a family is. And, and as we know, family involves many aspects. And, and today, what we call the traditional family is being set aside. And by traditional, I mean usually a, a man and a woman who are married that have children. And that is being set aside. It's even being rejected. It's even, even spoken against in some ways. And so, but what we call the traditional family, I'm more concerned about what the Bible says about family than what tradition says. And I'd like to think the tradition of our country looked at family that was biblically oriented. I don't, but we want to look at the Bible. So my goal in this sermon, especially today, is to open the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and discuss God's creation of family, to set the foundation for the weeks ahead. And, and that will be the biblical starting place is marriage. So, so we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. So please, raise your hand if you need a Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't own a Bible, take it home with you. But let's go ahead and pray. Keep your hands raised if you need a Bible. I want to pray. Father, guide us in your word today as we ask this question about family and marriage. Give me wisdom and, and clarity of speech. And Lord, we want to know your truth. So thank you. In Christ's name. It's because of our world today that has multiple different views of what family and marriage is. Um, even in the church, there's different perspectives. So my goal is to show you my understanding of what Scripture says as the foundation. My real heart, as I always say this, is not that you agree with my interpretation. My heart is that it drives you to Scripture so that you can say, this is what God says about family, this is what God says about marriage. We always have to start there and let that inform the culture. You with me on that? Um, and, and we're not always going to agree. And it's okay if we don't always agree. But, but this is one area, though, in our culture that if you disagree with a certain perspective, you're viewed as a hateful person. And it's a sad, it's a sad place we've come to in our country that in order to propagate my belief, I have to make anyone who disagrees with me a hater or a fool or an evil person. So, again, my goal is to look at Scripture, and I realize that you're going to hear my interpretation of Scripture, and, um, and I hope it drives you to study the Scripture to see if what I say is so. So, let's go to Genesis 1. First page of the Bible. And what we look at first, the foundational, there's two foundational truths. Where I went like this. You know, sometimes this finger doesn't obey two foundational truths of scripture. The first one is this. Men and women are equally God's image bearers. All right, this is foundational. Men and women are equally God's image bearers. Genesis 1 goes through the six days of creation. And after God created everything else, you know, the, the, the planets, the suns, the, the, the moon, the, 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 the oceans, the fish, everything else, on day six, he creates mankind, human beings. And it's presented as the pinnacle of his creation. So let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And I'm actually reading from the NIV. This is the ESV. A few verses are from the NIV. Otherwise, I'm doing the ESV. 
So I like the way the NIV puts this. After he's created everything else, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's probably not a new passage to most of you. The human beings, every one of us, are image bearers of God. But what is the image? The Bible is clear that God doesn't have a body. That, but we do. So this body isn't at the heart of the image. Now, God put his image in this body, so this body is very important. Never underestimate the importance of your body as you walk with God. But the body itself is made up of the same material that all the animal kingdom is made of. It's not the image. And only humans are called image bearers. So what is the image? What's funny is it never defines it. Never defines it. It's what sets us apart. In fact, at the end of day six, after he makes humanity, after each day, God says, it is good. It is good. It is good. On day six, when it's all done, it is very good. So God has put his image bearers in place. It is very good. And being an image bearer of God makes us of great worth to God. So understand that. You have an, an, a value given to you. God has declared on you, you have great worth in my eyes. Because I've made you in my image. So always remember that. To God, you are incredibly valuable. I lost my place. So valuable... This, seems, this might seem weird. According to Genesis 9, 6, humans are so valuable, image bearers are so valuable, that if one human kills, murders another human, God says that the murderer is to be put to death because he has killed someone in my image. So bottom line, God has such a value on humanity that if we choose to murder an image bearer, by doing so we forfeit our own lives, God says. Now, death penalty is a whole other issue. We can have another sermon someday. Let's look at the cultural background here. And we talk about image, though. Moses is writing this. So Moses has left Egypt, taking Israel with him, the people of Israel. So what the people of Israel have known for 400 years is Egyptian idolatry. That's, that's their filter. And where's Moses taking them? To the promised land. But that's Canaanite idolatry they're going into. So they're leaving one form of idolatry, going into another form of idolatry. And what, what is this idolatry? The people would take, have a temple to their gods, many gods. They would take some wood, gold, silver, bronze, something, and mold an image. And set it up, whether it was small or huge, set it up to be bowed before. A lifeless image made of wood, gold, silver, that you fall before and you worship. God says in the Ten Commandments, do not make any image on earth of me. Never make an image of me and put it on the shelf and say, there's my God. So while we're not to make images, what did God do? 
He made his image. And we're living. He made human beings to be his image. And he puts them in a garden and tells them to rule. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, uh, what's the word, answer or, or solution to lifeless idols on a shelf. God's image is you and me. We're supposed to reflect who he is. So let's look at God's divine will for mankind. It's very important to understand this divine will. We'll come back to it in a bit. God's divine will for mankind, his image bearers. Read 28 again. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So two things here is God's divine will for his new image bearers. First, have babies. Fill the earth. Fill it up. So that's the first thing. Second one is rule over the earth as God's vice regents. You know what a vice regent is? If a regent is, is, comes from the Latin, it refers to the ruler, the king. Well, God has appointed us to be his vice regents to oversee his creation. We're not lifeless idols that sit on a shelf. We are living, breathing image bearers of God who have been given a commission. Have children, make more image bearers, and oversee this world. And today what happens in our, in our, and some of you are more aware and astute than others, I've just become more astute in environmentalism, things like that over the last decade, but sometimes humans are seen as the problem. And in some ways we are. But in God's design, we're not the problem, we're the solution. We're supposed to be the ones who oversee this creation and take care of it in his place. Listen to Psalm 8. This is David talking about our role in creation. He opens it with, Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But in verse 3, he says, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So think about that. If you were to go out today in nighttime, a clear night, and you look up to the skies and you see a full moon over there, or a moonless night, you see the stars. There's a sense of wonder, but also a sense of I'm utterly insignificant. You think about that. The vast, and David's understanding of the vastness of the universe is nothing compared to our understanding of the vastness of the universe. So who are you? And who am I? That's what David is saying here. In all this glorious majesty and vastness, what is a person that you would even think of him? Well, listen to what David says. Yet, in light of that seemingly insignificance, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some translations are a little lower than God. The word there is Elohim, which can refer to God or it can refer to angels. It can refer to, to the heavenly beings. So, so translators struggle with this one. But, but this is where we are the pinnacle of God's creation. In light of our, what we're perceiving insignificance when we look at the created world, in spite of that, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. 
And then he ends with what he started with. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, do you grasp your identity as an image bearer? This is something you should think about your whole life, your significance. Do you grasp the person next to you is an image bearer and has great worth to God? Thus, we should treat each other with that worth. So that's the foundation. We're all image bearers, male and female image bearers. Oh, by the way, we're to have babies. We're to make other image bearers. The words male and female, and this is important for the next section, the words male and female, they come from two root words. Male comes from the root word piercer, and female comes from the root word pierced. It's anatomical, and it sets us up for chapter two on marriage. So, second foundational truth. Marriage is the first human institution that God establishes. We're going to walk through Genesis 2. We're not going to look at every verse. And look at the storyline as God has laid this out. So, Genesis 2 opens up with a summary that God has made the heavens and the earth. And all that. And at day 7, God rested. Then, then it talks about the creation of the man, Adam. So, look at Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So all along in chapter 1, when it described creation, God says, let there be light. And what happened? Let there be stars and moons. He speaks it, it happens. All the way through, he says, let this happen, let this happen. One time he said, let the earth produce the animals. But this, now he gets to man, it gets very personal. He actually forms him with his hands. Now, God doesn't have hands. Literally, God doesn't have a body. But the, the, it images him here as a person taking raw material and forming Adam and molding him and then breathing life into him. So it's very personal. And I think that personal touch is the image of God, that mankind is my, the pinnacle of my creation. So Adam is made first, and then he's put in the garden to work it and take care of it. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And I want to encourage you, if you're a younger generation, you tend to have already a more acute um, awareness and maybe concern for the environment and the creation. I want to encourage those of you, my generation, to give more thought to it. What is our role over this earth? To work it and take care of it. And to the degree that the problems in the world are human-caused, we need to do our best to reverse them. But here's what we got to remember. We don't worship the creation. We are God's vice regents over the creation to work it and take care of it. It didn't produce us. We are made in God's image. But we are given a role that is of high responsibility before God. Does that make sense? 
I know this gets political, and all of a sudden we want to reject something because it's political. Don't do that. What does scripture say? Adam's put in the garden to work it and take care of it. And as he's doing that, comes along that all of a sudden he realizes, hey, I need a mate. So it's not good for man to be alone, God says. Look at Genesis 2, 18 to 20. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. This is him ruling the earth. This is him ruling over God's creation. He determines the names of the animals. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, ladies, men, you don't get to talk. <laughs> ladies, when you hear the word, Eve was made as Adam's helper. What comes to mind? What does helper mean to you? Be honest. Servant, someone said? Helpful. But the, the English word helper isn't really, it has multiple ranges of meaning. So any journeyman carpenters in the room or plumbers of the trades, any journeyman in the room. Okay, Joe, you hire somebody to be your helper. Apprentice. Apprentice is a step up from helper. What does a helper do in your business, Joe? Crawl. Crawl. Joe's put inserts HVAC systems. So a helper does whatever you tell your helper to do. So ladies, how does that make you feel? I see eyes rolling. Jim, Jim, don't cause me trouble today, Jim. Works alongside. Okay, let's, let's um, go deeper in the biblical word. Okay, the biblical word. In our English, in certain categories, certain environments, helper means subservient, less than. And it doesn't mean that here. It can't mean that here. The word is azer in Hebrew. It occurs 21 times. Twice is right here. We just read them. So that makes 19 other times it occurs in the Old Testament. Of those 19 times, 16 of them, Yahweh, God, is our helper. Okay, very important. Listen to a few of them. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. That's Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 75. But I am afflicted and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my help and my Savior. Lord, do not delay. So one is about, is about my, our help and our shield, so protection. The other one is about is about, I'm in dire needs of something, come save me. So if God is an azer, a helper to us, it can't mean subservient. That's not at heart of its meaning, that, that Eve is subservient to Adam. But it begs the question, to help Adam with what? To be his helper, to help him do what? What's happened, and we'll get to this in two full weeks, we'll look at Genesis 3, where sin enters the picture and really messes with marriage. But right now, 
God has given Adam a charge. What's his charge? What's the two things is God's divine will for mankind that he's given to Adam already? Have children. Men, can you do that alone? That was supposed to be a joke. Come on, lighten up a bit here. So, so clearly, the idea of procreation, a man and a woman coming together in marriage and having children, requires both. And they have different roles. We'll see that as we go ahead in, in this series. The other one is to feel, um, rule over the earth. So Adam and Eve together are God's vice regents. So Adam is created first, and God says to him in the garden, rule over it. So the first thing he does is name the animals. Finds out there's not one like him, so God makes one for him, and we'll do that in a minute here. Look at that. But together, they are to accomplish God's will. Now, um, here's where some of you may disagree with me. And, and I'm, like I said before, I'm used to people disagreeing with me. I have children. Um, I believe, Scripture teaches, from the very beginning, that God has called the man to lead in the home. And Eve has been given to Adam to be his helper to accomplish God's will, not Adam's will. And, and the reason I say this is that Adam's created first. He names the animals. God gives him Eve, called helper. May this come alongside Adam, be his partner to accomplish God's will. But Adam and Eve in chapter 3, we're going to learn, did not do God's will. They did their will. And we get to the New Testament. There's this thing called sin. And it says we got our sin from one person. Who did we get it from? Adam, not Eve. Think about the implications of that. Adam is held responsible for sin, not Eve. So, gentlemen, we're getting this more in a couple weeks when we go to Ephesians 5. But God, I believe God has called the man to lead in the home. And lead doesn't mean be the boss, you're not the authority. We'll see from Ephesians 5, that's not what it means at all. But it does mean we have a responsibility and accountability before God. As we and our spouse, our wife, gentlemen, I'm talking to gentlemen, we come together to accomplish the will of God. God didn't give you gentlemen, your wife, to accomplish your will. You want me to say it again? Yeah. Gentlemen, gentlemen, God did not give your wife to you to accomplish your will. He gave you your wife for you to become one, I'm getting ahead of myself in my sermon here, to accomplish God's will. And gentlemen, he's going to hold you to a higher accountability than is your wife as to whether or not you came together to accomplish his work. So if you disagree with me on that, I like I said, I'm okay with disagreement. You go to scripture, please. And if you want to come prove me wrong, please do, you know. But you go for your own satisfaction before the Lord because this, this is what God has given us for truth. And we all have to interpret it. Um, and so we have different interpretations. But please, please run to the word in, in prayer and ask the Spirit to guide you. So now let's look at God creates Eve to become Adam's partner. So let's look at the specifics of that. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took, out, took one of his ribs and closed, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to man, to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I remember one commentator, and I, I, I think it's, it's, it's partially true, said what Adam is saying here is, And there's some truth there. There's some truth there. That Adam is all alone. He's all alone. And he sees the animals that he's naming, and they're paired up. And he realizes, none of this is like me. None of this fits me. The idea of to make a helper that fits him, that corresponds to him, that completes him. None of these animals do that. So at last, she's here. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is from me and she's like me. At that point now, God institutes marriage. The two become one. And this is a very important phrase we want to set up today and we'll deal with it in the next two weeks. On Mother's Day we'll talk about it and we'll talk about it after that from Ephesians chapter 5. God institutes marriage. The two become one. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, in light, of, in light of Adam's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall, be, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here's the words in English. There's a similar Hebrew. Woman, man. They, they have the same word in them. Man is in the word woman. Hebrew is the same way. She, she, she could be called Isha because she's taken from Ish. So the Hebrew play on words is come through as in English also. Therefore, verse 24, this is now Moses' commentary on the creation of Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That sets us up for chapter 3, where shame comes in from sin. So, Moses is writing this as they have left Egypt they are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're heading into the promised land, which was, um, by then, the Canaanites were living there. So, as Moses is wandering, he writes these books. God leads him to do that. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. Why is it the man leaves his father and mother? Why isn't it the woman leaves her father and mother? I want you to think about the culture. By definition, clans live together, patriarchal. If a lady married a man, she automatically left her birth family and moved in with her husband's family. They probably all live in the same tent. So, so. Specifically, if I were to get married and Teresa moved in with me, I'm still living with my parents, most likely. We're a clan. Why is it telling me to leave my mother and father when, in fact, she did leave her mother and father to join mine? This takes us to the implications of marriage. The first one. And these are up here as a whole. Um, look at the first bullet point. The union of husband and wife is more important than the parent-child relationship. Let me show you what I'm saying there. Given that 
I, still with my family in this culture when Moses wrote this, Teresa moves in with me, there may be a propensity for me to still be more devoted to my parents than to my wife. Especially in a patriarchal world where I obey my father. And what this is telling me here is now this union is more important than my relationship to my parents or to my children. It's very important. A man shall leave his mother and father, even though he may be living in the same household as them, and be joined to his wife and cling to his wife. The two shall become one. Parents and children, that relationship is never called to becoming one. Do you know the only other relationship where two become one? Is Christ and his church. Which we're going to learn in Ephesians 5. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. So gentlemen, this is saying here, because when, when, when the storyline, the narrative, there's just Adam and Eve, there's no parents to leave. But Moses is writing this for the Israelites. Saying, men, when you marry that woman, that is the top priority in your life, not your extended family. Does that make sense? I do this in premarital counseling. And, and Elena made some visuals for me. I usually draw pictures, and it's very stick figure-like. My artistic ability, um, when stick figures become popular, I'll be famous. <laughs> but until then, it, they, they're barely legible. So Elena made this picture for me. Think, see, that's a, that's a bubble. Think of a bubble. The husband and wife become one. Two become one. Let me see if I'm getting ahead of myself here. I probably am. That's okay. Two become one. And there's something very significant about that. And we'll, we'll ask the question again in a minute about that. This bubble now is sacred. No one gets in this bubble. Husband and wife together, no one else is allowed in. No one is, no one is greater than those two. But yet there's still the larger family unit. So show the next slide of the parents. So this is another bubble, a larger bubble that has your parents, your brothers and sisters. That's sacred too. But at the core of that is your marriage, ladies to your husband, husbands to your ladies. Most important, then you have family. Well, over time, if you're going to do the great the commandment God gives, what are you going to have? Little image bearers. So they tend to come in between the parents and the marriage. So these bubbles, you have the larger bubble, which is the extended family. Then, well, not to start in the middle, you have the heart is the husband and wife together. Nothing more important than marriage. Next is the children. And after that, it's the extended family. All these are sacred bubbles. And you don't get to move down bubbles. So parents in the room, when your children got married, was there a temptation to want to kind of tell them how to live their life? How to have a marriage? Uh, just, maybe some of you, your, parent, your kids said, back off, mom, back off, dad. I can handle this. And we think, no, you can't handle this. You have no idea what you've signed up for. <laughs> but we need to respect our children.
I didn't get her permission, so I'm going to, whenever I do this to her, she goes, oh, what is he going to do? <laughs> when I married Teresa, her husband had passed away. I was divorced. We have eight children. Seven of our children were grown when we got married. But she had one 11-year-old daughter who was still in the home. So I became her stepdad, and her father had died. So I became her stepdad, and, and she just moved to L.A. this week. We have a wonderful, wonderful relationship. Um, we love each other deeply. But when she was 14, she wasn't so happy with me. She basically said, you've ruined everything. Because mom and I used to have a relationship. But you came along and you ruined everything. Because now it appears, what she was saying was, your relationship with my mom is more important than me. And she was right. And she didn't like the implications of that. And trust me, we adored her. We have spoiled her rotten. She's incredible. I drew these bubbles for her. I know that's how I go. Um, and I said to her, God's design is a husband and wife come together. You and your mom were in a bubble, and I was over here by myself. When we came together, we formed a bubble, and you got pushed out one. And it bugs you, and I don't blame you. But understand this. When you get older, you're going to get into a bubble. And we're not allowed in. And that's what's supposed to be. We're supposed to be of support and encouragement. But in the end, husband and wife come together, and they become one. And no one else is allowed in that bubble. Then my next point is phys the physical act of sex is what consummates this marriage. Remember what male and female mean? Piercer and pierced. Now they come together, and that is the consummation of it. It's called the act of marriage. And this used to be normal, you know, 80, 100 years ago. This is how people understood it. Today, it's changed completely how we understand it. We, we, every culture has a, a tradition of how marriage is recognized. And the Bible doesn't tell us specifically how to do a marriage ceremony. It just doesn't. The culture and the state are involved. So, and this is the way that God designed it. So it looks different in different cultures. Our culture, you go down and get a marriage license, you stand before a judge or a pastor, and you say vows to one another, because it's a covenant. We'll talk about the covenant next week. This is a covenant you're entering into, you use vows. Different cultures do it differently. But in the end, what actually makes you married is when you consummate the marriage through the physical act the word sex seems so base to use. The physical act of intimacy where a man and a woman come together and consummate that and they become one. It's very important that we grasp this. And to show you that, if you care to do this, go look up 1 Corinthians 6. And there's children in the room, so I want to be careful. But Paul is rebuking the men of Corinth because they are going out... And becoming one, he says, with, with ladies of the evening. Follow me? And he's saying, why do you do that? You have now become one with them. What is he saying to us? What's Paul saying? You married them. You married them. Because you did the act of marriage with a professional. I'm trying to keep it vague. That's how important intimacy is in marriage. With one person, the one you became one with. Now, so as I move through this, the sum of the two becoming one is greater than the parts. 
What do I mean by that? Two become one, and I would say that one is greater than the parts of the two. One, you've invited God in in your vows. When, when I do weddings, I'll do weddings for Christians or non-Christians, because it's, it's, it's a blessing of God to all humanity. But I'll tell people, when, when two people who don't follow Jesus ask me to do their wedding, say, I'd love to. Actually, I don't always say that. If I'm not busy. Sorry. Um, but I have two requirements. I will talk about God in your ceremony and give him glory for the act of marriage, the, the institution of marriage. And in your vows somewhere needs to be till death do us part. If you're not committed to this for life, then I don't want to be part of it. But we're going to talk about it. So it is designed to last a lifetime. And those two become one. There's something that happens that's mystical. And that's what Paul says in first, or Ephesians 5. There's a mystery in marriage that reflects Christ's love for his church. Why is adultery and divorce so painful? If you've gone through that, and I have, why does it rip your heart out? Because there's something greater than simply two people coming together and say, I, I love you. There's something that's greater than some of the parts that happens in our hearts and our souls. We become one with a person, and when a, a person, one of those two joins to another person, it destroys the fabric of that commitment, of that covenant. And then divorce is a ripping apart of what God intended to be forever. So we must get back to hold marriage to what God designed it to be. And it excludes all third parties. Now, I'm, I've left my list. Go back to my list, would you? Would you? Sorry, I've left it. I've done it out of order. Um, it's to last a lifetime, two for one, and no third parties in. And see, that, that, that's common today. Open marriages, I'm not sure how common it is, but it's not uncommon. Open marriages or, or one person wandering off, you know, to intimacy with someone else. That's not God's design. Just like the mystical meaning of marriage is Christ's love for his church. We are the object of his affection, not somebody else. And our love for him must be a devotion that no one else gets. Husbands and wives are to do the same. It's to be designed for a lifetime. Listen to Jesus' quote in Genesis 2. Actually, I'm going to skip that now because we'll come back to that. We're going to have a whole message on divorce and remarriage. So that'll be a month or so down the road. The last point, marriage, sex, and children are a package deal. To separate them has created untold pain in our world. This is why I'm going to leave you here today. We'll come back to it in time. God had made Adam and Eve, designed them to fit anatomically and emotionally. Husbands and wife are different types of people that God designed to come together. They come together through the act of marriage anatomically, and then the end result is children. We've separated those and made them all three distinct things, where you can do one of the three, two of the three, or none. And, and I suggest to you that a lot of our problems in our world today is because we've ignored this. I want you to think about that. Think about that. Marriage, from the text, 
marriage, sex, and children are a package deal. And by separating them, we've created some social problems that we're having to deal with every day. So, so remember, when we get there, I, I'm divorced. I, I understand. I don't want to be a hypocrite here. Um, but I want to set up God's ideal. And then we ask, how do we live life in light of that? So with that, this is the foundation. I've raised probably more questions than I've answered. I've hopefully not confused you. I hope that um, this drives you. You read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and read Ephesians 5 this week. Because Ephesians 5 will play out the rest of this two, three weeks. And we'll go into Genesis 3 in two weeks, where, where sin comes in and affects marriage. Um, I firmly believe this, that God's first act with humans is to create marriage. A man and a woman coming together to create a marriage. The definitions of marriage and family today are all over the map. So what has God said in his design for marriage? And how are we doing in our marriages? We will have some practical aspects of marriage in this, in this sermon, and some theological. We want to have strong marriages that honor God. We want to have families where there's children who know what it means to love Jesus and live in a world that's increasingly contrary to Jesus. So we want to address child raising. We want to address singleness. Almost 40% of Americans are single. And this room is probably no different. Some of that singleness is you haven't got married yet. Some of that is you're divorced and not remarried. So, so all this is the fabric of our church. And hopefully we can address it all and ask, what does scripture say? But in the end, I hope, my desire in my marriage is that God is honored. In the way I've messed things up, she never messes anything up. In the way I mess things up, so I've already had done things without asking her permission. So, I, um, And God's mercy is incredible, is it not? So those in the room who feel like they haven't done it God's way, there's forgiveness. Let's get back to our hearts to look at what Scripture says about marriage and family and um, make that our priority. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts and minds, Lord, through your word, through your spirit, to get us to think about your purpose in marriage. It's the first thing you did was create marriage. Why? Why is that so important to you, Father? Show us. And then give us the humility we need be the kind of husband, the kind of wife, or the parent, or the child that you have designed us to be in a world that's filled with selfishness. Um, help us to have that Christ-like, spirit-filled attitude of humility and service in our families first. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.